Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Wu Do and Megan Keshup covering the American Pediatric Surgical Association's 50th anniversary meeting. Today, we have the distinct honor of sitting with a legend of pediatric surgery, Dr. Alberto Pena. He is the director of the International Center for Colorectal and Urogenital Care, as well as professor of surgery at Children's Hospital Colorado. As the pioneer of the posterior sagittal anorectoplasty, Dr. Pena has completely revolutionized the care of children across the entire globe with colorectal and urogenital malformations. Sir, it is a great honor. The, the time when I describe a new approach, and I like to, to do it mainly for, uh, as a message for the young generation of surgeons to keep their, their eyes open and um, with a touch of a skepticism, and most likely you will be able to make a contribution also. Absolutely, sir. So back back in those days when you were part of the younger generation and you were viewing cases with skepticism, how were children with anorectal malformations being treated at the time? And what about that led you to think there's got to be a better way? Well, yes, when I was, uh, when I was in training, um, I heard uh, to my professors uh, how to treat anorectal malformations and... Um, Basically, what happened in those years before 1980 is that we were operating anorectal malformations without knowing the intrinsic anatomy of the malformation. And um, if you think about the history of the surgical treatment of congenital anomalies, esophageal atresia, duodenal atresia, intestinal atresia, diaphragmatic hernia, all those uh, malformations went through... uh, several important stages. Number one, the recognition of the, uh, the, of the malformation. Um, in the old, very old times, there were no autopsies. So the patients died and nobody knew why. Then came the time of autopsies. And the doctors were able to see the cause, what, the, what, what was the reason why the child died. And they knew normal anatomy and they look at the esophagus and there was a discontinuity of the esophagus and then they made the diagnosis of esophageal atresia post-mortem. Once they, you know the normal anatomy and then the abnormal anatomy, then as a smart, uh, bold uh, surgeon decided, I bet I can repair this. But he has to go through those stages, normal anatomy, abnormal anatomy, and then conceive Several doctors tried to do that and failed, but there was one who was successful, and that person became famous because of that. Usually, though, the repair of, of congenital malformations was uh, achieved um, between 1850 and, the, and 1950. After that, um, but there was only one malformation that even in 1980, we were operating without knowing the intrinsic anatomy. Because the reason for that is that we saw that the patients have no anus, 
but uh, there were two ways to treat these patients, very primitive. Both ways were basically blind because you either you enter through the abdomen to dissect the bowel and then from below and pull the bowel. But remember, more than 80% of the patients with anorectal malformations have a junction between the bowel and the urogenital tract to the urethra and the male, to the females. And, um, and the separation of those structures was done blindly. It's when you enter from below, you find the rectum and you start pulling and you try to see, and it's very difficult to see, particularly in a little baby. So the same happened when you went through the abdomen and tried to, even now with laparoscopy, it's very difficult to see exactly the intrinsic anatomy behind the urethra. As a consequence, yes, the patients were treated like that blindly, but the results were very, very bad. And not only bad in terms of bowel control and, and, um, and uh, urinary control and sexual function, but also because we were damaging st- structures that were normal. In other words, the, the operations were actually producing damage in these, in these babies. And that's what I learned. I learned that in my training in 1969 to 71. And then I, uh, and then we heard about uh, a prominent surgeon, Dr. Douglas Stephens from Australia, who for the, he, he, um, he was a, a very nice gentleman, very intelligent, very creative. And he decided to study cadavers of children with anorectal malformations. There are not many cadavers of children because children don't die with anorectal malformations. So, but he managed in Australia to get 12 cadavers and dis- dissected and learn about the anatomy. And because of those studies, he concluded that there was one particular structure called puborectalis muscle that implanted in the pubic bone, went behind the urethra, and it went to the pubic bone like a sling. And he said the reason why the patients are incontinent is because we have been pulling the rectum behind that puborectalis. We're supposed to pass the rectum behind the urethra and within the puborectalis. That was a great idea because we can see the puborectalis pushing the rectum to give bowel control. And everybody embraced that idea. It was great. And, it, and, it, and he started doing those studies in the 1950s in Australia, but we learned in the United States about that when I was in training. One of his fellows came and, and told us about all this. And in every meeting that you went, everybody started talking about the puborectalis. And, uh, and everybody started talking about different modifications to the tec- Stephen's technique, to, but all of them with the goal to preserve the pure rectalis. And I was there sitting as a resident listening to all this, but nobody showed a picture of the pure rectalis. So everybody said pure rectalis, the pure rectalis, and the pure, and then they put the fingers, I feel the pure rectalis, and then they are an X-ray and the pure, but I could not see the pure rectalis. And that takes us into the story of uh, of the king, the naked king. Do you remember that story? This king well, uh, decided to uh, call his tailor and said, "Please make for me the most beautiful dress ever." <laughs> and he uh, and the tailor said, "If I don't make the beautiful dress, this guy is gonna fire me." So he came up with a brilliant idea. Said, "Sir, I have the dress for you." Please undress to do with your, 
and he simulated that was putting a dress, but actually it was nothing. It just I said now, but this dress that I made for you has one very important and unique characteristic, which is only smart people can see that. The stupid people cannot see your dress. Look at yourself in the mirror. He looked, and the king said, what a beautiful dress. And actually, he was naked. <laughs> what a beautiful dress. He said, tomorrow I'm going to parade in the in town where everybody can see my, my dress. So he announced that to everybody, and everybody was there ready to applaud. And he was walking, but in, the, in between the people, there was a child. A child, like the young people, has no prejudices. See, so the child has a fresh mind, and that's what you have. And he, and everybody was applauding, and beautiful dress from the king. And the child said, "Mama, look, the ch the the king is naked." So that's very very important. So I couldn't see the pure rectalis, and then and then I decided one day to to open in between both buttocks in order to see the pure. That was my goal. I said, I'm going to use an electrical stimulator to see it, to identify it. And then um, I presented my my ideas in one, in one of the meetings in pediatric surgery and was not very welcome. I, I had a lot of opposition and the experts, the pundits were not happy about that. So I went back to my country, to Mexico, and, and decided to open and see, and uh, could not see the pure rectalis. And, uh, but, but I, at that time, everything started by cu my curiosity to find the pure rectalis. But actually, I didn't know that I actually was opening a Pandora's box, because what I was l seeing there for the first time is directly in front of me, the junction between the rectum and the urinary tract. And it happens that the rectum is connected to the very critical part of the male anatomy. That's where we have the prostate, seminal vesicles, vas deferens, and the nerves that give erection and bladder function. So now we had enough explanation as to why many patients have no erection in, in, in urinary incontinence, no ejaculation, and so many problems that we, we saw. So that, that, I didn't know that I was, uh, seeing that for the first time and learning to I found that the separation of the rectum from the is a, the most delicate part of the procedure that was the most important part but I was not looking for that at that time so the um, that that's how it, it happened for the first time and then I came the the next step which is something very important for you young doctors it's not only the ideas, the, uh, the creativity. I'm fascinated by the creativity. Why people is creative, why? So the creativity comes from, um, not everybody is equally creative. So I believe that people's born born, some people is more um, um, curious than others. You need curiosity, to, you want to find out. So my recommendation is, Learn medicine, learn surgery, but keep your eyes open and question everything. It's a, a, a touch of uh, skepticism, and don't believe everything that is in the books. Okay, and and everything you read, ask yourself why did they say this? What are the basis of this? Where do you get this idea? And go to the primary basis. 
So, but the, the, and then you come up with an idea, with a, uh, but the idea comes, there's no effort for that. It, is, it comes just like that. You, you don't, you don't say, I'm going to be creative, I'm going to be creative, I'm going to be, no, it happens. It's just, and, but then the next step is the difficult part, which is you have to pursue your idea. You have to, to keep working. You have to demonstrate. So I opened the patients. I saw that. But now I have to convince people. For that, I need hundreds or thousands of pictures and movies. And, and in Mexico, they don't pay you to do that. You have to pay it yourself. You see, see, they, they, you, we don't have grants. Mm -hmm. We don't have uh, donations. You, you, have to, you have to do a circumcision in private practice in order to buy uh, a book or to buy, take slides of photographs or movies. You have to pay yourself. And if you went to a meeting, you have to pay yourself. Here in the United States is a paradise because my institution pays me to come here. That's a dream. So then uh, hard work, going to the meetings and presenting that. And then was the most beautiful part of the story because uh, traveling all over the world, I traveled with my stimulator, I traveled to my instruments to operate, to demonstrate that. I learned that the, the only way to convince, that one surgeon can convince another surgeon about something is in the operating room with a, with an operative demonstration. When you come to the meetings, you see people presenting beautiful, giving beautiful conferences and lectures and videos and photographs. You go to the, to the place where he works, watch the operation, follow that person, and and that's when you really learn the, the truth about you can be make a beautiful presentation, but a live operation, a real operation, that's when you see exactly what kind of surgeon he is. And so I wanted to show the the the, the operations to everybody. And I, and of course, as expected, young doctors accepted the new concepts because that they 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 had no prejudice. They were not, their minds were fresh, open minds. And it's not easy to find old people open mind. Yes, I found some extraordinary human beings because it's not easy to say, I have been practicing surgery for 40 years and all what I have done is wrong. That very few people is brave enough to say, to say but I found some people like that. But mainly the, it was a, it was usually a young surgeon from a hospital that invited me, and the senior surgeons were kind of skeptical about it. But then I showed them the operations, and they, they usually changed. So that has been a, a magnific magnificent trip in, in my, my life. I'm, that's why I'm so optimistic, and, and the, um, um, I trust you, young people. I believe that you, you, you are better than us, and you have a, um, great future. You see, don't, don't, I'm very optimistic. And, and if you embrace pediatric surgery, wow, that's, uh, the best of all specialties, the most curative of all specialties. And, um, and, but what the changes in technology and knows what is happening in manipulation of the genetic material, those, that, that represents challenges that we never dream, you know, ethical challenges. Moral, and you have to be present, and there's no question that you will succeed and to benefit many children.
That was fantastic, Dr. Pena. Um, so one thing that we love to do is hear from you yourself, kind of describe your procedure. And so if you don't mind, could you walk us through how do you perform your posterior sagittal anorectalplasty? And it doesn't have to be terribly detailed, but we just would love to hear from you how you perform it. Okay, so so I don't, just just by voice, it's not going to be easy, but I, I will try it. First of all, um, people said, how many animals did you operate before doing that? The answer is zero. Because wow. And a lot of people says you would never, if, if you were going to do it in the year 2019 in the United States, perhaps you would never have done that. Perhaps, perhaps. But the results were so bad with the previous operations that I felt that there was nothing to lose. In addition, I decided that I could open in the midline without injuring anything because, as you remember, everything is terminal in the midline. There are no, no important nerves that cross the midline. There are no important nerves that cross the midline. And if you stay in the midline, you are not injuring most of the times anything important. So I said that's number one. Second, I decided to use a stimulator. So in the first operations, I opened a little bit the skin and then used the stimulator and opened a little bit more and used the stimulator. It took me hours. Look, I was very careful because I, I was learning. Now it's much faster. But basically, divide everything in the midline. Skin, subcutaneous tissue, and all these finter mechanisms. Now... You learn in the textbooks about the anatomy of the sphincters, the rectal sphincters, and then and they, they, they torture you the, because the anatomy professors are use, usually sadistic individuals, not very good doctors in general, and then they, they torture you because they, they uh, to learn things that are useless. See? So in the area of the sphincter, we learn the puborectalis, the ischiopubococcygeal, the superficial external sphincter, the, the, the deep external sphincter, the, uh, the elevator muscle, the puborectalis. The, the, forget about all that. Okay? It's not like that. Those, those were anatomies that have nothing to do, and then they started describing those portions. It's like like dividing your 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 forearm in seven parts and put invent different names for each one of those parts just to make you suffer, rather than saying this is the forearm, this is the this is the anatomy. But the sphincter mechanism is a single structure that is like a funnel-like muscle, voluntary muscle that contracts. That there is no such a thing as puborectalis and deep external sphincter. That those are inventions of people. I don't know why they did that. So then you divide everything in the midline, and then you are going to find uh, the rectum. And 10% of the times, you will never find the rectum because the rectum joins the bladder in the in, in much higher. And opening this way, you don't find the rectum. And that's why before you do this operation, you need a study of contrast material through the colostomy to see exactly what is the rectum. This operation should not be at present time exploration, should be perfectly planned. You know what you're going to find, exactly where and how. So we open, we find the rectum, we open the rectum, and sure enough, more than 80% of the times, right in front of you is the fistula, the hole that goes to the urethra. And then comes the separation of the rectum from the, from the urinary tract and the closure of that fistula. 
and we learn that um, contrary to the old diagrams that the rectum joins the urethra and, and both rectum and urethra share a common wall. There is no plane of separation. In other words, the rectum doesn't, it's not connected to the urethra in a T fashion. It's not a T. It's the rectum is joined to the, to the urethra and they share a common wall. And in order to separate, you have to work in that common wall, trying to make two walls out of one without a, a natural plane. So that's, that's the most delicate part of the procedure. So this is a delicate operation. I believe that in something that I call surgical temperaments. There are surgeons that are, were born to be delicate and others that are not delicate. And every time I go to visit hospitals and scrub with, with the residents, when we are scrubbing confidentially, I ask the resident, if your baby, your own baby, your son or your daughter needs an operation in the middle of the night, whom do you call in this hospital? And they give me one name. And then I said, and whom will you never call? And she also, they also mentioned one name. And that's in every institution in the world. But that is politically incorrect about that, to talk about that. But that's a fact. And you know who knows that? The scrub nurses and the senior residents. They know that. But they, they don't supposed to talk about that, except in the coffee breaks. as a gossiping, you see, but that's all. Well, this operation must be done by people that has the temperament, that love surgery, that enjoy surgery, that it has the capacity to slow down, to be meticulous. Um, the um, sur surgical temperaments, there are surgeons that are good for trauma, for war, for tumors, for food, and, and, but not for meticulous operations. So this is a delicate meticulous operation. But it's, and, and then you separate the rectum, and, and put a couple of stitches in the urethra. And then you have to mobilize the rectum to move the rectum down. And the dissection of the rectum is another delicate part of the procedure. You're supposed to do it without injuring the rectal wall. And once you mobilize enough to bring the rectum down, then with the use of electrical stimulator, you stimulate the area to determine where is more voluntary muscle. Because remember, we open everything in the midline like a book, and we are going to close it like the same way that you close a book. And the rectum is going to be located in, like in a sandwich surrounded by muscle. And for that, you use the electrical stimulator and put the rectum in the right place. When I started doing the first operations, I was very happy and excited because I thought that all patients with unrectum affirmations will become normal citizens, completely healthy. Because that's the, the paradigm in pediatric surgery, that the beauty of pediatric surgery, you take a baby with a lethal malformation and with your own hands doing a meticulous, delicate operation, you, you have a normal citizen with a survival of 75 or 80 years, not five-year survival like in the adult textbooks, 75 years. Nothing like that in the world. See, that's really, ex that's what made us pediatric surgeons. So I thought that all these babies would be normal, and very soon I learned something that is very important for all the young doctors to know, that everything in biology is a spectrum. Spe I like to talk about the spectrum. 
In other words, there are anorectal malformations with good anatomy that we certainly operate on them and they are normal. And patients that are born with a terrible anatomy. That we can, we can make a rectum, we can make a vagina, we can make a ure- but we cannot make them functional. So that's the spectrum. And in general, about 75% of the patients have reasonable function that makes them socialize like us. But at least 25% of them, they have no bowel control. Others may not have urinary control. And then came the next step. Are we going to let, just let them go and not, not do nothing, send them back to the pediatricians? And I believe that if you enjoy and have the privilege to operate these babies, you are obligated to follow these patients for life. And now we are, I see my patients, 30 something years old, adults, I come, they don't like to go to adult hospitals because in adult hospitals, they don't understand the, the concerns of these patients. So now we are working in something called transition of care. That has got to be so gratifying to see the immense growth uh, that has occurred in this field because of such a revolutionary change to practice. Um, so you mentioned that as you're doing the procedure, there are a few common pitfalls, uh, and I'll briefly attempt to summarize. So you mentioned not having a pre-planned, perfectly planned operation where you don't know exactly which structure you'll encounter is one pitfall. Another pitfall is not doing an appropriately delicate dissection uh in order to separate the common wall, uh, and you also mentioned injuring uh, the rectal wall. Uh, are there any other pitfalls that young surgeons uh, such as ourselves should look out for as we attempt to venture into this dangerous territory? No, I think you summarized very well what I... So, so the, um, the, um, there is one particular study called high-pressure distal colostogram. When we open a colostomy in these babies, they have two stomas, the one that produces stool and the other one that we call mucous fistula that goes to the urethra. That, through that mucous fistula, we inject contrast material under pressure in order to be able to distend the distal part of the bowel and to see exactly the location of the fistula in a lateral film so you can see the sacrum and the coccyx because we'll enter in posteriorly. So you know exactly what, what to do. And so, as a consequence of that operation, the the classification of anorectal malformations changed because we were, as usually, we are very simplistic, uh, particularly surgeons, we are very simplistic. We divided anorectal malformations in high and low. It's like saying that we divide human beings in sh- tall and short, or also we divide them into, into good guys and bad guys, like some presidents think that, that like that. And we know that it's not true. We are a spectrum, right? So the same happens in anorectal malformation. So we have to change that. Unfortunately, even now, 38 um, years later, people still talking about high and low. And, and, and it's very difficult. The resistance to change is one human characteristic. Not everybody changes. So, so the simplistic ways to say high and low, but that's not. Other more sophisticated people say high, intermediate, and low, but it's equally misleading and archaic. So we don't use that. And also the, the, my concept of the anatomy in a normal anatomy of the anorectum changed for me. And also I go to the meetings and open a textbook 
textbook of uh, colorectal surgery, current one, modern one, and you will read about the purectalis and the ischiocosis of the same things, but they don't change. It's not easy. It's going to take more time. You have to, to go and talk about that. So as you're talking about, you know, what you still would like to see changed, I'm wondering, is there something now within pediatric surgery, within anorectal malformations that has continued to pique your curiosity, some unsolved problem that you are still, uh, you know, trying to solve or that you would like to see young surgeons try to address? Sure. Sure. The, the, um, the question is, what's next? What's next? Well, the... the um, the um, I I described to you what the the um, the history of the 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 anatomy in, in congenital malformations. The next step is the function, the function. That's much more difficult because in the old times, I told you the guy who was successful in doing by the first time the an operation become famous. Doctor Robert Gross, like the Doctor Arteriosus here in Boston, and he became world famous. So now that those heroes or protagonists uh, um, is going to be rare. It's going to be gr- now. It's going to be groups of people, scientists. You know, much more difficult, much more money. The challenge is is phenomenal. You know, and then um, in trying to re- to restore the function. Because in, um, in, in 1980, I did the first procedure cycle, but in 1982, I decided to to deal with another challenging problem, the cloacas malformations in females. I thought that the same approach would be good, and yes, now we have I have 608 cloacas operated since that time. So, but but the um, so there are several things that are going to happen. Tissue engineering is going to help us to restore part of the function. Because um, some patients, sometimes we need vaginal tissue, we need bladder tissue, we need, and, and there are laboratories working in, 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 you send a little piece of mucosa of a patient to the lab, and they grow those cells, and, and, and we fantasize that they will send us a big piece of this, and we can repair the malformations, because some patients don't have a vagina or have very little vagina or urethra. So that's that's coming. That's number one. But then, of course, transplants. Uh, some, there's already a, a uterine transplant done in Texas, I think. And then genetics is going to be at the very end of this, right? And the stem cells. That, that we, we are working now in... Um, and little mice, um, we take a little mice and and r- r- uh, dissect the, the rectum with the sphincter and t- take a little piece of that rectum and mobilize the upper rectum down to the skin. In other words, we are making that mice incontinent. We remove the sensitive part, the anal canal and the sphincter and pull rectum down. So leave the mice incontinent. And then we give that that specimen that I removed to a, a good friend of mine that is a scientist, a gastroenterologist that knows how to grow cells. So, so, and he uh, takes those those uh, cells and grow them, and cult- 
in a culture of cells. He knows how to do that. And then we are going to inject that in the mice to see if those cells give from change from incontinent to continence. So this is just a dream. This is just the beginning. But he came because of one of the fathers of my, one of my patients called me. Uh, he is a business person and he said, Dr. Peña, my son has no bowel control. You operated on him. We give him an enema every day. The, the 25% that have no bowel control, we keep them clean with enemas. He said, must be a better way to, to, to treat with this. I said, I'm sure there is a better way. He said, I'm willing to give some money to do some, a research with the stem cells. This is a businessman telling me. So my knowledge about stem cells is like, like, like about the, the Greek, Greek philosophy or, or I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't know much about, I, we are busy surgeons. We are operating. I said, I'm sure we can do something. So I called the expert and said, we need a project within a few hours to do this. And we came up with the idea of the mice. So of course, that's the beginning. As I understand that it's a, a complicated world. So that's more of a challenge for you, for you. And then, of course, stem cells, and then finally, at the very end, genetics. And then avoid the malformations. There must be a way to, to eliminate these malformations, and then we surgeons, we have to do something else, not to operate these babies. <laughs> That's the dream, right? Do the research so that we don't operate anymore. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Peña. This has been such a pleasure and an honor uh, to hear in your own words the PSARP described that has transformed the lives of so many individuals for the better. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Jumping right into our next segment, we are thrilled to have yet another luminary of pediatric surgery with us today. Dr. Donald Nuss is the creator of the Nuss procedure for pectus excavatum. Dr. Nuss, it is truly an honor to meet the legend behind this revolutionary technique. In your own words, could you please describe how you perform the Nuss procedure? Well, the first thing you need to know is that even though the principle is surprisingly simple, that is, we slide a curved steel bar under the sternum and turn it over, there are many, many details in the operation that will lead to catastrophe if not carried out properly. So I don't want anybody to do the procedure unless they've been properly trained and properly mentored and should have an experienced surgeon show, show them and help them with their first procedure. That is probably the most important thing to know. So the, the idea is this. We're going to slide a curved bar under the sternum and then turn it over. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing we do is we measure the chest from anterior axillary line to anterior axillary line, and then we subtract one inch or two centimeters from that measurement because the bar takes a shorter course than the tape does on the outside of the chest. We then make about a one-inch incision on each side of the chest from the anterior axillary line uh, to the, to, to the middle axillary line. And that will be where we insert the bar. Now, uh, we me so we me measure the bar, we bend the bar into a semicircle, but leaving a small flat section in the middle for the sternum to rest on. 
We want the bar to be right under the chest. We don't want there to be a gap between the bar and the anterior chest wall because the lung can herniate through there. And secondly, if you undercorrect the, uh, the chest, then they will get a recurrence. And also, then the bar may be sitting on the pericardium and adhesions may form between the bar and the pericardium. Whereas if you really elevate the sternum, there will be no contact between the bar and the pericardium. So as I say, there are lots of little details in this procedure that are very important. So uh, the incisions are made in line with the deepest point of the depression. The bar should rest right under the deepest point. However, some patients have a long depression, uh, uh, a uh, trench-like uh, depression, or some people talk at the Grand Canyon type of deformity. Then you may need two or sometimes even three bars. Now, sometimes the depression is also inferior to the sternum. It may be at the zyphosternal level, in which case you must put in two bars, one under the deepest point, but one has to be under the sternum. Because if you only elevate the soft tissues at the lower end of the sternum, you won't correct the deformity. Then uh, you create a tunnel from the incision on each side to the top of the pectus ridge on each side and just go inside the ridge, just medial to the ridge. At that point, you're going to insert a long curved clamp through the intercostal space into the chest. And then under thoracoscopic guidance, and you will, of course, have put the thoracoscope in either two, uh, two interspaces below the incision or two interspaces above the incision, depending on which procedure you use uh, for uh, placing the patient on the table. Uh, and then under direct vision, you dissect the mediastinum off the undersurface of the sternum. Now, to facilitate this, uh, it has now become standard practice to elevate the sternum. And there are several ways to elevate the sternum before you do the dissection. One is to put a, a, a wire suture through the anterior uh uh, part of the sternum, and then attach it to a rule tract retractor, which allows you to crank the sternum up. You can also use the vacuum bell, which is uh, developed by Mr. Clovey and is sometimes used to treat younger patients uh, to elevate the sternum while you're doing the dissection. The, another technique is to make a little incision below the sternum insert a hook under the sternum, and elevate the sternum. This is all to facilitate the mediastinal dissection. When one is doing the mediastinal dissection with an introducer, specially designed introducer, you should always keep the tip in view. You never advance the introducer without being able to see where it's going. And the dissection should always start uh, anteriorly and, and at at the che anterior chest wall, and then in a downward movement, much like a dog would try and pull you to get your attention. You always go from superior down to inferior. That way you dissect the pericardium off the undersurface of the sternum. Never simply advance the introducer, because if you just ad simply advance it and the heart is compressed, you will probably go straight into the heart. So very important. Elevate the sternum before you start the dissection. Dissect in a downward motion and always keep the tip in view. And as you get across to the other side, you then come out through the same in 
corresponding into space on the opposite side, medial to the top of the ridge. And then you advance the introducer all the way through. And then you should lift the anterior sternum, the anterior chest wall, and mold the chest to the desired configuration. In other words, you're doing the correction of the anterior, of the deformity, and the correction of the anterior chest wall before you insert the bar. So the bar becomes a retainer, like dentists put retainers in after they remove the braces. And uh, so elevate the sternum and mold the chest wall to the desired configuration. And only then do you attach an umbilical tape to the end of the introducer, gently pull the introducer back out, and attach the umbilical tape to the curved bar. Then you slide the bar in, and with special instruments, you turn the bar over. That's the first half of the operation. The other half of the operation is to stabilize the bar. If you do not stabilize the bar, it will become displaced. So the chest is very mobile. Every breath you take, the chest expands and contracts. And then you, you bend forward, you bend sideways, you twist, you turn, uh, play golf, you do somersaults, whatever. Very important to stabilize the bar. And that is done by applying a cross piece on the end of the bar at the left side. And we call that a stabilizer. Stabilizer has to be anchored to the bar. And we use fiber wire for that. And on the right side, we pass two sutures around the rib and around the bar. And we usually use PDS, uh, one or zero PDS. And we put several of those sutures around the bar and around the rib to stabilize the bar. And then we check the chest, make sure everything's okay. There should be minimal blood loss. There shouldn't be any bleeding because the mediastinum has really few blood vessels. And uh, check, make everything's okay. And then you have to evacuate the air that you've inserted, the CO2, because you've used thoracoscopy. And uh, we usually use the uh, cannula that um, we've inserted uh, to evacuate the air while the anesthesiologist reinflates the lungs. And then postoperative management is a whole other chapter and uh, discuss that at another time. So I just wanted to know, when you developed this, did you know at the time that you were a game changer, that you were going to change the practice and change the lives of children who no longer needed the more, the more invasive procedure? I had not the slightest idea that what the impact was going to have. The problem was that with the old open procedure, with the wide resection, the pediatricians and primary care docs were not referring the patients because they felt it was... Uh, too much resection. So we were only seeing four patients a year. And so even though I thought, well, we might change the procedure for these four patients a year, I never realized that there were thousands and thousands of patients who actually needed surgery. So it, it talk, caught us totally by surprise. To give you an example, in the first 10 years, which was the first article, we did 45 patients in 10 years. In the next 10 years, we did 1,200 patients. That is superb and such an impact. Dr. Nuss, thank you so much for your time. It was an honor. A pleasure. Until next time, dominate the day.